0: Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. Milestones in people's lives. God, I thank you for everybody uh, who has had a good thing happen in school this year, from kids who... Are headed to, uh, to kindergarten, uh, to kids who have, uh, and, and, and adults who've graduated from different programs, who've gotten uh, workplace commendations, uh, people who graduated from master's programs from college. God, I thank you also, especially for our high school graduates. Um, young people who are, um, the last year, year and a half for them has been tough. It has not been normal going to school for anybody. Um, And God, I thank you for those kids who persevered, who figured out how to work hard in spite of difficult circumstances. God, I want to pray that uh, you would be guiding them in the next stage. Often, God, I think about the fact that it's tough. It's so hard to be at that age and to figure out what am I going to do for the rest of my life. Um, And so, God, I pray that you'd be directing them as they make decisions about college, about careers, about jobs. Um, I pray, God, that you'd give them wisdom and that you would help them to know um, where to head and what you have planned for them. God, I do, as, as Andy said, I thank you for our teachers. I thank you for people who um, help in schools, for teaching assistants, paraprofessionals. I thank you, God, for staff that keep schools open and keep them clean and keep them functioning. Um, God, sometimes day to day, we forget how important it is that we're investing in young lives And even here at church, God, our teachers who work hard, who've planned lessons, and who get just a short time every single week to be teaching faith. God, help help them all, help all of us to see how important it is to invest in our young people and young lives. Thank you, God, for those people who are willing to do it. God, now here we are for all of us, uh, whether we are a young life or an old life or somewhere in between. God, this is a time when you are choosing to invest in us together all at once. We're going to pay attention, God, to your word. And for those of us who teach your word, whether we're teaching to preschoolers or whether we're teaching to adults, we do have a burden to be truthful and to be accurate and to say what we believe you once said. God, it's very easy for us to get off track, and I know that sometimes we've taught things that aren't true, that we don't intend to, and we're doing our best. But I do pray, God, that if in any way, uh, I or our teachers downstairs, if we say anything incorrect, I pray, God, that through your Spirit, you'd guard us, all of us, from being influenced the wrong way. But God, I do pray that you would take truth, whether we are two years old or five or 70. I pray, God, that you will take truth, that you will invade our thoughts and our lives, and that you'll transform us into the people that you want us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For quite a long time now, I don't know if you know this, but... um, Uh, The people at Greyhound Lines, that's the bus company, Greyhound Bus Company, they have helped to run a program called the Home Free Program. And what the Home Free Program does is uh, the people at Greyhound, they give free bus tickets to kids who have run away, free bus tickets home. And I think uh, when I was looking at statistics, believe it or not, they are closing in. They're very close to helping 20,000 families uh, be reunited, 20,000 plus runaways they have helped to reunite with their parents. Now, just so you know, those of you who are thinking, like, um, you know, maybe, maybe I might think, um, you, you cannot just knock on the Greyhound bus ticket window and say, Well, I ran away from Wyoming, can you give me a ticket home? Um, you, you can't just do that. You have to actually have, it's a pretty strict program. You have to be between the ages of 12 and 21, your name has to appear on the National Runaway Hotline. Um, you have to be willing to actually return home. You can't just get a bus ticket anywhere. You have to go home to your family. And your family has to agree to receive your home, and everybody has to agree ahead of time to counseling. In fact, before you get a ticket, uh, the, the program, what they do is they actually do a home evaluation to make sure that it's safe for you to return home. They, uh, they will work to hook your family up with community resources, Um, They will do a follow-up visit to make sure that the runaway child has returned home safely and is doing well. And it's a pretty significant program. And it's amazing to me that since they started this a few years ago, almost 20,000 families have benefited, 20,000 families. That is a lot of runaway kids. And it's a lot of heartbroken parents, um, both of whom, because of this program, both of whom have gotten a second chance to be a family. So uh, did you ever run away from home? Anybody ever run away from home? Uh, I know I did. A um, couple times I ran away from home, or at least I threatened to run away from home. Something in my little elementary school heart would get me, ma- get me mad, and I would announce to my mom that I was running away. And I think that I expected some sorrowful, repentant uh, meltdown from my mom, and instead every time I told my mom I was running away, mom would say, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Can I pack you a lunch? Uh, kind of takes the heart right out of running away when mom offers to help, doesn't it? Well, I don't, I don't think you have to always be a runaway to feel like uh, you're far away from home. I think there are any number of experiences or heartbreaks or failures or fears or sins that can make a person feel like a runaway and and far from home. I think there are all kinds of sicknesses of our souls that make us feel disconnected from people. You might be right now sitting six inches away from somebody and yet you feel all alone and disconnected and maybe even far from home. And then comes that moment when we recognize that and we say, I just want to go home. I just want to be home. We've, as a world, we've had 18 months of trauma. And for some of us, it's been much worse than it has been for others. But we have all been disconnected, hidden behind masks, and giving each other space when we pass in hallways. We have been angry with each other. We've unfriended each other. We have been fearful, and some of us still are, very much afraid. We've been stressed, some of us overly stressed. We have carried enormous burdens, some of us. And for some of us, our lives have been interrupted in ways that we will never get back. We have lost all kinds of things. We ex- have experienced all kinds of grief. And what we're discovering as a culture, as a world, really, is that it would be a mistake It would be a mistake to pretend that we can just knock on the door of home and say, well, I'm home and all is well. It'd be a mistake to think that we can just get back to life as it was. What we're finding is that reconnecting is going to take enormous effort. So today we're actually going to begin talking about what you and I have to do to reconnect, to come home and start over. I'm gonna read what is a pretty longish account about a man named Peter. For some of you, what I read is very well known. Uh, You know this story so well that there won't be any surprises. For some of you, it's a new story and there will be some surprises, and that's just as well. But for all of us, whether you know it or not, just just to be sure that we're all on the same page when we read this, I wanna give you some background to what I'm about to read. The background story is that on the night that Jesus was arrested and beaten up and taken in front of a kangaroo court, Jesus had been with his closest friends. And when he was with them, right before all this trauma got started, he warned them that enormous trauma was about to interrupt their lives. So much so, he said that all of them were going to turn tail and run away. Well, Peter, who is classically foot and mouth Peter, Peter, when he heard that from Jesus, Peter made um, a very obnoxious statement. Peter kind of jerked his thumb over his shoulder at his buddies, and he said, well, maybe them, Lord, maybe them, but not me. They might run away, but not me. I won't abandon you, even if they all do. I will die for you, even if they're all chickens. And Jesus said, Peter, Peter. Speaking of chickens, Peter. Before you hear the morning rooster crow, you'll deny three times that you even know me. And I think you all know the story. He did standing in a little open courtyard just outside where Jesus was being punched around a little bit and mocked in a pretend trial, standing next to a charcoal fire where he was warming his hands next to a servant girl. Peter said three times, the third time even adding a fisherman's curse. Three times. Well, I don't know him. Now, in Luke's account of this episode, Luke tells of a horrific moment when right after Peter cursed, even knowing Jesus the third time, Luke says that the two happened to lock eyes. Peter outside and Jesus inside. Jesus probably with blood on his face by now. Luke says Jesus looked at Peter. Peter looked at Jesus, and Peter knew that Jesus had heard the whole thing. Jesus knew. And Peter's soul cracked open, and despairing tears poured out, and Peter ran away from home. And then the chicken crowed. Now that was the story that everybody knew about Peter, and worse, Peter knew that Jesus knew, but Jesus had died. Then the resurrection happened. If you're Peter, it's kind of hard to go home again, isn't it, and pretend all is well, given what you did. So I'm going to pick up the story. This is what happened, and I'm going to be reading from John chapter 21. And I'll read kind of a longer section, the first 17 verses. This is after the resurrection. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, And two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Well, we'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught anything? No, they replied. Then he said, throw your net in the right hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, that is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed for shore. The others stayed with the boat, pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net to shore. There were about 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter answered, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was deeply hurt that Jesus had asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, I think you probably need to know that this whole episode, from beginning to end, is very deliberately choreographed, the whole event. There's nothing haphazard, there's nothing coincidental, nothing at all. Starting with the place where it happened all the way to the end, Jesus choreographed everything. Even the place Jesus choreographed, the event where it happened. And what I mean by that is this account could not have happened anywhere else. You know, sometimes in stories, you know how sometimes a story has to happen at a certain place. Imagine, for example, how different the Lord of the Rings would be if Frodo had to return the ring to Boscov's rather than Mordor, the place of fire and death. How different the story would be. Or imagine how different Downton Abbey would be if the Crawley family lived in a -a three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-story ranch home just behind Dorney Park. How different the story would be. Sometimes the place is necessary. Sometimes the place is a character in the story, and it is here. This happened in this place on purpose. Let me explain. Jesus, as you probably know, Jesus was crucified and resurrected in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. Jerusalem is kind of down south. Jerusalem is in an area called Judah. Jerusalem is where the temple is located. And it's the temple that drew people to Jerusalem. But for Jesus and for all of the disciples, Jerusalem was never home. Jerusalem was a destination. Jerusalem is where they went for Jewish festivals. But for Jesus, his enemies were centrally located in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, for Jesus, was always a very unpleasant place. In fact, there were lots of times when Jesus was in Jerusalem when the gospel writers would say, when evening came, Jesus would leave Jerusalem when the sun went down because Jerusalem wasn't home. It wasn't a safe place to be. Jerusalem was tense, and it was busy, and it was angry, and it was full of self-righteous prigs, and it was full of Roman soldiers who tended to shove you around if you looked cross-eyed at them. So every gospel writer, in hindsight, they wrote that when Jesus knew that his time had come to die, they said Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. You didn't go to Jerusalem for vacation. You didn't go to Jerusalem because you were going home. You went to Jerusalem because you go to die. On the other hand, Galilee is home. Galilee is a region. Think county in Pennsylvania. Nazareth was in Galilee where Jesus grew up. Capernaum and Bethsaida were in Galilee where 10 of the disciples had lived all of their lives. Cana was in Galilee where Jesus went to a wedding for a family friends with his disciples where he did his first miraculous sign that the kingdom of God was here. The lake was in Galilee where storms happened, where water walking happened. And where by its shore, Jesus preached and taught and fed thousands with a schoolboy's lunch. For all of them, Galilee was home. Here's why this is important. According to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew said that when Jesus was resurrected, one of the first things that Jesus had said was, To the female eyewitnesses of his resurrection, Jesus said, tell my brothers, tell my friends to go home. Tell them to meet me in Galilee. Meet me at home. Now the odd thing is that we know they didn't do that right away. They stayed in Jerusalem. These guys were just frozen with fear for at least a week. They didn't know what to do. So they stayed in Jerusalem, not knowing who do we trust, what do we do, where do we go. But at some point after that first week, maybe day eight, day nine, who knows, at some point they went home. At least seven of them did, according to John. They went home. But even at home, when you read this account, you have this sense that even at home, they still didn't know what to do. We get the impression they're kind of lost. They're floundering. They're putzing around trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And Peter finally says, guys, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. And they all say, well, us too. We'll go with you. Now, you need to know they didn't go fishing for fun. Fishing was their livelihood. It's what they did for a job. These guys, all of them, all of them, they once fished this lake for a living. And I think that that's what they're doing again. I think Peter says, guys, I'm going back to fishing. Now, I don't think that that means that they're abandoning Jesus. I don't think that that means they're saying, well, those years with Jesus were a waste of time, so let's go back to our old life. I just think they had no idea what to do. So, they do something. They do the next right thing that they know to do, and when they do the next right thing, Jesus shows up. At home. Now I am certain that this is one of the reasons, this is probably the main reason why Jesus takes them home. He takes them to this lake. It is on purpose that Jesus shows up while they're fishing on a night that they have caught nothing. Remember, there's nothing coincidental here. And here's the thing, three years earlier, maybe three, we don't know for sure, but three years earlier, the same group of guys had been fishing on this same lake, almost certainly in the same boats, and probably at this exact same spot. Jesus had been on the shore. He'd been preaching all day long. He had a growing reputation as a miraculous, healing, teaching man of God. And on this occasion, three years earlier, there were so many people, and they kept crowding and crowding in on Jesus, that Jesus saw some fishermen standing there who were cleaning their nets after having fished all night and getting skunked, not caught a single fish. And Jesus said, guys, can I borrow your boat? I just want to stand on your boat and preach from it. Give me a little space from the crowds. They said, sure. But when he was done preaching, he said at the end of the day, he said, guys, let's go fishing. Peter said, Rabbi, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. But if you say so. So they pushed off And they fished, and you probably know what happened. Without warning, their nets were so full that they started to tear, and the boat started to swamp when they pulled the nets in. And Simon Peter, who was a man who knew a miracle when he saw one, and who knew the darkness in his own heart, Simon fell on his face and he begged this man of God, leave me. I'm too much of a sinner. Leave me. Three years earlier, Jesus had said, Simon, son of John, don't be afraid. Follow me. Give me your life, and I will make you a fisher of men. Now, that was three years earlier. And in those three years, so much had happened, so much. But all of that had ended with Simon Peaser standing by a charcoal fire and cursing, saying, I never knew this blankety blank guy. And their eyes locked at that moment. And you know. Now here we are on purpose. Deliberately choreographed. Same lake. Same boats. Same fishing hole. Once again, these guys fished all night. A stranger on the shore says... You haven't caught any, have you? Short answer, no. And then a command. Not a question, kind of like, well, have you tried over there? A command. Throw your nets on the right-hand side. And instantly, instantly the nets were full. Now pause for a minute. Why exactly did Jesus do this? Well, I think it is step one of a very well-planned surgery of the soul for Peter. Step one, take Peter home to where it all started, and he did. Here he was home. Same boat, same lake. And just like that night a handful of years ago, that night when Peter thought that he had given his life to the greatest man he ever knew, that night three years earlier when Peter had had hope, once again the nets were full. That's step one. Step two in this surgery of the soul, the charcoal fire, Peter jumps in the boat jumps from the boat wades to the shore and there's the scene of the crime do you know in the entire new testament from page 1 to page the last there are only two charcoal fires only two you already know the first one on a chilly night in a courtyard maybe 2 weeks earlier Peter standing next to a servant girl warming his hands. The gospel writers say that this young girl was staring at Peter and said, I know you. You're one of them. Well, we know how that charcoal fire ended. Now Jesus draws Peter to a second. Peter comes wading ashore with his clothing tied around his waist, and Jesus has been cooking breakfast over a charcoal fire. Charcoal fires have a very distinct smell, don't they? You can walk around the neighborhood, and somebody's having a wood fire in their fire pit, and it smells like camping. It smells like a wood fire. When there's a charcoal fire, it smells different. It smells like cooking. And waiting ashore, Peter smells it. The last time he locked eyes with Jesus, he locked eyes over a charcoal fire. And here we are again. Why would Jesus do this? Why revisit the scene of the crime? Do you ever fail and use failure as a motivation? Husband cheats on his wife. Not because he didn't love her, not because he wanted to leave, but just because his testosterone took over and he had the opportunity. Thought he could resist. Thought he could flirt a little, play with fire. Thought that he could stop when he needed to but he found out he couldn't he feels just awful can't sleep feels physically sick and finally he knows i have to confess he confesses his sin and he starts a long long journey of rebuilding a marriage that he doesn't want to lose And in his mind, he tells himself this, I will spend the rest of my life making this right. I will do everything I can to make her happy. She did not deserve what I did. So from here on out, I will do right by her. Anything she wants, she gets. Since I treated her so badly, I will make it up to her. Failure becomes a motive We're trying to do good. Maybe an addict or an alcoholic has been dismantling your family for years. All kinds of broken promises, too much damage. She knows what she's done. So in a sober moment, she begs and she cries, I'll make it up to you. I promise. And what follows is a string of promises. It's an attempt to use shame as a motive for doing good. Do You ever do that? Use failure as a motive for doing good? It's common, it's normal, I think we all do it. Does it work? Maybe for a week, a month, a day. Failure as a motive is pretty slick and slimy. It just doesn't stick. And besides, I don't really know if I'd want it to. If I ask my best friend, hey, how comes you always pay for breakfast when we go out? And he says, well, there was that time I borrowed your canoe and it sank and I've never quite forgiven myself. I treat you so well because I failed you. I don't know that's what I want in a friendship. I don't know that I want someone who is always trying to make it up to me. I'd much rather have him smile and say, because I love you. I'm glad we're friends. That's why. I think when Peter comes charging ashore with his clothing tied around his waist, I think that's what Peter was doing. I will show Jesus how devoted I am to him. I'll show him I can make it up to him. He'll see. And then Peter locks eyes with Jesus over a charcoal fire. Jesus is doing surgery, soul surgery. And sometimes... Sometimes it's just so hard for us to get to the core of our sin, our failures. There's an old, old story about a guy named Charles Steinmetz, who was one of the brightest engineers ever to work for General Electric in the 20th century. Story goes that after Steinmetz retired, he kept consulting with GE, and one time a production line went down. They couldn't keep it running. Nobody knew what to do, so they called Charles. Charles came in, spent a full day walking around all the machines, listening and looking and putting his hand on them and thinking. Then at the end of the day, he took out a piece of chalk, put a, an, an X mark on one particular machine and said, start there. And sure enough, that was the problem. A week le- later, GE got a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, which was a ton of money back in the day. So they sent the bill back and they said, can you justify $10,000? Can you give us an itemized bill? Tell us what 10,000 is for? And they got a second bill and it read, making one chalk mark, $1, knowing where to make it, (laughs) $9,999. Isn't the hard part knowing where to make the mark? Where is the sin that lives in me? Jesus knew. So he took Peter to a charcoal fire. The scene of the crime. I wonder sometimes where Jesus would make the mark in my life or yours. John, who wrote this, who was an eyewitness, John, on his first page of the gospel, John wrote a, a beautiful account of who Jesus was. John said that when Jesus came into the world, light came into the world. And John said, the light shines in the darkness, and that is exactly what Jesus is doing for Peter right here over a charcoal fire. Jesus is shining a light into the dark corners of Peter's life, and it is not fun. And that leads to step three of this soul surgery. Over a charcoal fire, Jesus asks Peter three questions. Simon, son of John, full name, like Robert Daniker, full name, Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these do? You might remember that that was Peter's boast on that ugly night. These guys might abandon you, Jesus, but I never will. They might be chickens, but I'm not. I'll die for you. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? That's a tough question, isn't it? You can't really answer yes or no. It's like that famous question, do you still beat your mother-in-law? You can't really say yes or no without getting yourself in trouble, can you? Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these do? you hear what he's saying? Peter, quit worrying about everybody else. This is the invitation from Jesus to, to Peter. Peter, quit worrying about everybody else. Quit comparing yourself. Quit thinking you are better than everybody else. Quit thinking you are worse than everybody else. Quit thinking about them, Peter, and deal with you. Peter, do you love me? It's soul surgery that is just so necessary for Peter. So Peter dispenses with all comparisons, and he just says, Jesus... You know I love you. And then two more times for a total of three. And on the third time, over a charcoal fire, Peter's heart broke all over again. The third time, Simon, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. And he did, didn't he? He knew everything. He knew that night. And Peter knew. Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. What this moment is for Peter is a kind of confession. It's redemption. Over a charcoal fire two weeks earlier, Peter had said three times, I don't know him. And now over a charcoal fire three times, Peter gets to look Jesus in the eye and say, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Confession is hard. It was hard for Peter. It was painful. It broke his heart. But there are two gifts that come to you and I when we confess well. One is we're freed from guilt and grace comes We quit working so hard to make it up. We quit stopping our thinking of, I will just make it right if I work very hard. And we get just this enormous gift of forgiveness. Grace comes. And we come home. The second gift we get when we confess well is that we are less likely to sin in the same way again. We come home and we stay. You know, I think the most well-known story that Jesus ever told was a story about a young man who ran away from home, ran away from a father who had two boys, and this one said, I don't want to be home. He ran away. Sometime later, Jesus said, sitting in a pig pen, this young runaway came to his senses, Jesus said. And he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll go home. And I will work for my dad. I'll make it up to him. But on his way home, his dad meets him on the road. And his son starts his memorized, I will work for you, dad. I will make it up to you, dad. He starts that speech and his father puts his finger on his lips and says, shh, you're my son. Welcome home. You're my son. Welcome home. We've spent 18 months apart, many of us, Even those of us who have been here all along, we've been disappointed at those who haven't been here. We've been angry over politics. We've been frustrated at those who have been afraid. Or we've been ticked off at those we don't think we're afraid enough. We've let the silliest things keep us apart. We have work to do. And today we set out to do it. Today, quit worrying about everyone else. Let Jesus do soul surgery on you. Let him shine light into your darkest corners. What have you been angry about and why? What are you afraid of and why? What comparisons do you need to let go of? Let Jesus make a mark on your soul and say, here it is. Here lives resentment, here lives anger. Here lives fear. Now, do you love me? Welcome home. Welcome home. Let's pray. Father, we wish that we could just kind of walk into the past and resume where we left off. We thought that's what we would do, and maybe we've been pretending that's what we're doing. But if we're honest, God, if we want to be home, we have work to do. We have to practice forgiveness. We have to practice grace. We have to get past our fears. We have to get past our frustration with those who are afraid. Have to get past our prejudices. Have to get past our anger. Have to get past our disappointment. Have to get past the silliness that has kept us apart. God, we can't do this on our own. What we depend on is that you will mark a spot in our souls. Say, here it is. This is where it lives now. Jesus, we love you. You know everything. And we love you. Thank you, God, for home and the promise of a welcome when we get there. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.